you don't mind, turn with me please to Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. We're going to go down through the end of the chapter. We're going to not only seek to understand what this passage is saying, but the implications of it for our lives. We will take tomorrow evening, Christmas Eve, and do a brief Advent meditation from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9, that passage that is familiar to many of you, the prophecy of the coming child who will be a mighty king, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. So we're going to meditate on that tomorrow evening as a combined gathering. I encourage you to invite your friends. We've geared this not only to be a blessing to our peoples, but also to be very attainable and reachable for our communities. So I encourage you to invite friends, particularly those who may not know Christ at all. It's a great opportunity for you to do that. Let's read together. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. May God bless to us the reading of his word. We're going to talk today about the main point that this passage is making, and that is that Jesus is a better Israel. Now, that very phraseology may sound a little odd to you, so let me explain to you the basic gist of what I mean by that. The name Israel that was given to Jacob means something like one who strives with God or one who strives after God. Jacob's name meant supplanter, Deceiver, if you know your Old Testament history well, that may ring a bell. His name change was significant. This was going to characterize him after his transformation. He had gone down after having deceived his own father and undergone quite a character transformation after he himself had been deceived in God's providence. He got a dose of his own medicine on his way back to the land of promise. God met with him and wrestled with him and gave him 
a new name, Israel. One who strives with God or one who strives after God. One who at one point had deceived, had postured, had manipulated, seeking to find his own way and make his own path of happiness, but who had learned over time that that didn't work and it made him quite miserable. Whereas before, Jacob had believed that he could search out his own destiny and make his own happiness. He had learned that that path was futile. God had proven that to him. That's what God does for His people. This is a whole other sermon, but one of the things that God often does is crush our dreams and aspirations. Not because He's a killjoy, not because He's mean, because often the things that we crave so desperately are actually not good for us at all. And in His goodness, He leads us down a different path. So Jacob became a different person, even got a different name. Then he had a bunch of sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. God chose this larger family as He had promised Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, that He would bless this people, this family, grow them into a nation, and through that nation, bless the world. So taking all this together, you might think that God was going to rescue the world through a nation, transforming them, using them to proclaim His character, to talk about how good He was, to to point the pagan nations who worshipped false gods back to the one true God. That He would use them to accomplish His rescue of the world, to turn the nations from darkness to light. The problem is, as you read the rest of Israel's history, where Jacob's name, his new name, became the name of the nation, what you find in the next 38 books of the Old Testament is that that didn't work. Israel was not faithful to God. Now, there were faithful Israelites at times. There were even certain generations that were relatively decent. But by and large, as you read the entirety of the Old Testament, the summary that you come away with, the the notion that you come away with, is that Israel was unfaithful. And she would not be able to accomplish any sort of rescue mission that God intended for the world. To undo the effects of the fall. To bring light into the darkness. And you come to the end of the prophets, the end of the Old Testament, and you're left with this deep ache. It was never meant to be this way, it feels like. God didn't make the world to be like this. And the moment you think that it might actually turn around, it seems like more and more darkness is creeping in. And despite all the privileges that Israel had, the covenants and the patriarchs and the law and the land and innumerable other blessings that she was unfaithful to God. So what was God going to do to fix it? Because He promised way, way back He would fix it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 proclaim to us And make it very clear that Jesus is the better Israel. And in fact, 
the overarching thing that we find from these verses that Jesus is God's promised Redeemer. There was a global, humanity-wide longing and aching for redemption. And Israel, God's chosen covenant people, could never bring redemption to pass. But God had made a promise long before this. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Moses records for us, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempted the first humans, Adam and Eve, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And notice these last couple of phrases. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A prophecy was given immediately after the first sin of our first parents that plunged the entire human race into sin, which explains why we are the way we are today, that God wouldn't leave it that way. He had every right to wipe us out, to start again, to kill the experiment. Why could God come and make such a proclamation so quickly, like it was on his lips, ready to go? Because, my friends, it was. The New Testament teaches us that God's people's names are written down in his book before the foundation of the world. How do you make sense of that? You make sense of that with this idea, this this inescapable, gracious truth that God knew full well what was going to happen in the garden and every human that lived thereafter. The purpose to rescue people through His Son. And this is why He could come to our first parents in their hearing and curse the serpent, encouraging them, a curse upon Him, the serpent, but a blessing to them, our first parents, that redemption would come. It was His intention all along In Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, more is revealed about what this coming Redeemer is going to look like. As Jacob, also known as Israel, is about to die, he blesses each of his sons. He says to Judah, who had been an adulterer and a very wicked man before this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Notice this last bit. The scepter. That's what a king holds in his hand. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So, what do we know about the Redeemer? He's going to crush the serpent one day. But according to Jacob, Israel, through Judah, his son's line will come a Redeemer who will be a king. We won't take time to term here today, but this in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the promise that God gives to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. God promised David that a ruler would not depart from his throne. God would bless David's line for forever. The 
problem with that, we know, is that David's line eventually was cut off, or at least so it seemed. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 11. Notice in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Let's pause for a moment. What had happened to the Davidic line by this point? All these promises made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It looked as though the Davidic line had had been cut clean off as though it had been a flourishing tree, and in God's divine judgment and displeasure, He had come through the nations and just cut it down. What was left? A hopeless stump. The prophet encourages us to to peer closely at the stump, and though at first glance it appears hopeless, there is a sprig of life shooting forth from it. This is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father. And notice verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his, eyes, what his ears hear. Both righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse 6, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. David never ruled like this. Solomon certainly didn't. And all that came after them didn't either. And you get to this point in Isaiah's prophecy, which is about 700 years before Jesus the Messiah was born to the Virgin Mary. And it looks as though the experiment once again is done. And it makes you wonder, is Israel going to be able to pull redemption off And again and again, you say to yourself, no way. But God keeps making promises. A Redeemer is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. He's going to be like a king. His kingdom will rule forever in David's line. And though it looks like it won't come to pass because of the darkness and depravity of humanity, God will bring it to pass. This brings us to this thought back from Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is God's promised Redeemer, and He was faithful to keep covenant with God when His people wouldn't and couldn't. The Old Testament is a story, if nothing else, of the inability of Israel to be faithful to God. So what had to happen? There had to be a divine figure a second Adam to give humanity a second chance. He couldn't be like any other human, even any other king that had ever lived. If the promise back in Genesis chapter 3 that a Redeemer was going to come and crush the serpent and be a king like we just read about in Isaiah chapter 11, whose rule is marked by perfect righteousness, it couldn't be a normal human. So what did God do? He gave us His own Son in a very 
unnormal way. Jesus was born of Mary the Virgin as a miraculous sign to prove to us that God was breaking into time time and space and He was going to keep all of His promises. You notice in verses 13 through 15 that much like Israel had to be rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus, that Jesus was going to do the same. Now, what you find here is that God is protecting Jesus. He is not going to allow him to die. Nothing is going to stop God's plan of redeeming the world through his son. So he warns Joseph in a dream, get out of here. So they travel about 70 miles southwest to the border of Egypt and probably a little further on where there was actually quite a large gathering of Jews where they could live kind of incognito, perhaps off of the gifts that they had received from the Magi until the time came where they could come back to Israel. So God is preserving His Son. God is making sure His rescue plan will not be thwarted. But God is doing more than that, as He always is. God is always doing more than our eyes see at first glance. He is calling Jesus to go down to Egypt as Israel first did, and then to come out of there. Jesus is going to experience much of the same things that Israel in the Old Testament did. But Jesus is going to succeed where Israel always failed. He won't take time to dig into this much today. But theologians note that in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus undergoes His baptism from His cousin John the Baptist. You'll notice in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John would have prevented Him, Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to Me? But Jesus answered Him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What is He saying? There's more more typology that had to be fulfilled. More picture prophecies that had to come to pass. What happened to Israel whenever they came out of Egypt? When God brought all the plagues upon Egypt and finally Pharaoh said, get get them out of here. Well, Pharaoh was sad that he had decreed such a thing, so he pursued Israel to the boundaries of the Red Sea. And Israel thought she was finished. But what did God do? parted the waters, and Israel walked across on dry land, and then as Pharaoh's army pursued, God drowned them in the judgment of the waters. Jesus not only was rescued out of Egypt, as Israel had made an exodus out of Egypt, typifying, showing their salvation, but they also had to go through the waters where God would not destroy them, but instead rescue them. Jesus does the same here in Matthew chapter 3, going through the waters. And then what does He do immediately? In chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is very deliberate. You know the story here, most of you. The devil tempts Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights. This is not a random number. This is helping us remember what Israel did after they made their exodus and came through the waters alive. 
They had an opportunity to enter into the promised land, but what happened whenever the spies were sent up into Kadesh Barnea? They lost heart. They distrusted God. This God that had parted the waters and given them the law <coughs> excuse me, on Sinai, who had proven to them that He would take care of them, they doubt Him. And God judges them and teaches them that they are going to have to, in that generation, wander in the desert for 40 years. That whole generation perished in the wilderness and was not allowed, including Moses, to enter into the promised land. What's going on here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15? And, and John, in Matthew 3, when Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, and in chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, who, and by the way, did not give in to the temptation of the devil as Israel had. The devil tempted Israel to distrust God, and, and they did. The devil tempts Jesus to do the same, and did Jesus fail where Israel had? Jesus succeeded in every point, demonstrating for us that where Israel had failed over and over again, Jesus would succeed perfectly. He was faithful to keep covenant with God when His people wouldn't and couldn't. I'll give you some cross-references here if you want to do a little more further study this Advent season. Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 24 is the account of Israel coming out of Egypt through the Exodus, going through the waters of the Red Sea, getting the law at Mount Sinai, and then making covenant with God, saying to God, we will keep all of your commands. Chapter 32, we know that they didn't remember the story of the golden calf as Moses was lingering on the mountain getting more laws from God. They convince Moses' brother Aaron to make for them an idol, and they worship it. God wants to wipe them out then. Moses pleads with God. God preserves them. Eventually, they come into Numbers, which is a book of censuses, multiple censuses, where God at the beginning is demonstrating this first generation that was cursed because of their unbelief would perish in the wilderness, but later another generation would arise that would go in and conquer the land. Israel's story is certainly cautionary, and it's also very tragic. The humanity left to itself will always turn from God. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5. In spite of all the failures of Israel, the darkness that we read about in the Old Testament, God had His eye on them the whole while. Look with me in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Then Paul takes verses 12 through 21 to teach us that Jesus is the better Adam, whereas our first father fell, his sins were credited or imputed to the rest of humanity, his offspring. Jesus gives us the gift of grace. Look in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the story of Advent. Jesus came as the better Adam, as the better Israel, to fulfill covenant with God and offer us salvation. Jesus is God's promised Redeemer, and He was faithful to keep covenant with God when His people, like you and me, wouldn't and couldn't. The rest of this text from Matthew chapter 2 Verses 16 through 23 in particular teach us this truth. He, Jesus, will overcome the deep and diabolical darkness. And this helps us understand the tension, my brothers and sisters, in which we live today. How is it that we can all at once feel the darkness and brokenness of the world around us? Children that have gone astray, marriages that are estranged, People dying, children being taken seemingly before their time, hostility against the people of God who are seeking merely to give people good news. We, we see that and, and we feel it. The only way we can't see it and feel it is if we bury our heads in the sands. And at the same time, we come to Advent and we have this, this unabashed hope that it won't always be this way, and that Jesus is breaking into the darkness. Darkness will not overcome it. Notice what Herod does here. When Herod realizes he's been tricked by the wise men who had been warned to go another way, Herod goes to the region of Bethlehem and every child under two years old, which could suggest that when the Magi came to visit Jesus, he was a bit older, somewhere perhaps between six and even 20 months. So, To make sure that he didn't miss anybody, he decreed that every child under two years old would would be murdered. This was a pretty small region, the region of Bethlehem. Scholars suggest this could have been maybe 12 children, maybe up to 30 kids. Not a lot in the grand scheme of human history. Can you imagine today if one of our national leaders outright declared the genocide of 15 or 30 kids? How else do you explain this except that it was just pure diabolical evil? Herod was an awful person. This is Herod the Great. He was well known for his massive building projects, including the reconstruction and expansion of the temple. But he was known for much more than that. He killed his own wife and several of his own children and later rotted away and died and judgment from God. Herod was more concerned about his own prestige and his own power than he was about the people that he ruled over. He was a puppet king. Rome had installed him there. He reigned 40 years or more. He was from a region that was sort of southeast of Israel. We often know it as Edom. He cared not for the people of Israel and he cared not for their God. 
when the prophecy was clearly fulfilled that God had sent the Messiah to the world rather than calling the people to repentance and expectation and turning back to God, He instead seeks to wipe it out. This is unspeakable. It's hard to even fathom. Except this gives us an insight into just how evil Satan is. You ever watch any gangster movies? Hang with me here for a minute. (laughs) You ever watch any gangster movies? Usually the gangster to his friends and family comes off as a pretty good guy. You can come to him for indulgences. He'll protect you. And if you're in his good graces... He's kind of like an old grandpa. But if you're on his bad side, you're in deep, deep trouble, and he will do whatever is necessary to wipe you out. I think we sort of think of Satan like that. He does bad things, but hey, everybody does bad things. He can't be that bad. That is not what Satan is like. Satan is pure through and through evil in every way. He hates you. He hates your children. How else do you explain the ubiquity and nasty reality of abortion in our country? It's satanic. How do you explain genocide that is still going on right now in our globe? How do you explain the fact that there are more people enslaved right now in our globe than there have ever been in human history? How do you explain that? The devil, he's evil. But notice what God does here. He makes sure that Joseph and Mary and Jesus get to Egypt to protect them so that the diabolical plans of Satan and his instrument Herod would not come to pass. This proves to us, as John says in the fifth verse of his first chapter of his gospel, that the light came into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. And so I say to you, my friends, the sadness, the darkness, the hard stuff, it's real. The Lord Jesus, by the power of God, will have the final word. So if you're struggling today with overt or internal things, or people around you are struggling today with hard and difficult things, I say to you, the Lord Jesus will have the final word. Do not lose heart. We won't take time to turn here either. This is what we will meditate on tomorrow night, so I encourage you to meditate on it before we get together. In this passage, we are promised that one day the Son will come, this promised Son, the Messiah of Isaiah 7, who will be born of a virgin who will bring light into the darkness. In John chapter 1, verses 1-5, through I mentioned these just a few minutes ago. Let me read a couple of the verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then notice the last verse, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Notice the end of this chapter, Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is back by parents to Israel, but not to Bethlehem and not to Jerusalem. Instead, to the northern region. He would go back to his hometown, Joseph, and Jesus would be called a Nazarene. There's probably a couple of things going on here. First, probably, is that 
Those that came from the north were kind of despised. They were kind of looked at as bumpkins. They, they were less than. This was going to be true of Jesus' life, born in a stable. Life sought to be stamped out, despised and rejected by men. His very origins were questioned. There's probably something else going on here as well. The Greek word here that is translated into English, Nazarene, is very similar to a Hebrew word, Nesser, from which we get the word root that we saw earlier in Isaiah chapter 11. Matthew may be indicating here that Jesus, who would truly be from the city of Nazareth and therefore called Nazarene, would be this Nesser, this root who would come to the people of God even though he didn't look like it. Even though he was not one to be esteemed, he would be the surprising salvation of God. I told you that we would not turn here earlier, but I'm going to turn and read the end of Isaiah chapter 9 for the section of Isaiah 9 for just a moment to give you a little more insight into what's going on in the text here in Matthew chapter 2. So I won't keep you from turning there if you'd like. The end of the text in verse 7. The prophet says to us, of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and his kingdom, this, this root to establish and uphold it with righteousness and justice forever from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's he going to do? Look back at verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. This is northern Israel, by the way. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, where Nazareth is. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. What is Jesus as if, not, if he is not the fulfillment of all these prophecies? That where Israel had failed, Jesus would succeed that where deep diabolical darkness had settled into the earth, even up to the time of Jesus' birth, that this promise that God would overcome the darkness with light, even from the region where Jesus would grow up, that God would keep all of His promises. How do we know this? Because Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 tells us, the zeal of the Lord of hope, the Lord of armies, will do this. What can stop the hand of the Lord of armies? And the answer is Nothing. And Advent is proof that God keeps all of His promises and Jesus is God's promised Redeemer to us. So Christians, let us take hope today that God will always keep all of His promises to us. And in the midst of a season where many, many are struggling, and even if you aren't, people around you are, let us bear to them the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and give them hope. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, now take these words and do in each of us which we all desperately need. May Your Word not return to You void. Give hope to Your servants. Give life to those who are wondering and wandering. Do this, Lord Jesus, for Your glory and do it for our joy. Amen.